This morning's sermon passage can be found in the Blue Bibles in front of you on page 1023. It is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love is the most important thing in the world, but baseball is pretty good too. So said Yankees Hall of Famer Yogi Berra. Whatever your thoughts may be about baseball, I think most people would agree that love is at least one of the most important things in the world. In fact, we live in a society where we like to think that love is king. Movies, novels, popular music, they all use love to sell their products. Right? If you ask someone on the street what their love language is, there's a pretty good chance that they will know what you're talking about. Even in the battle we've seen in our society over the past 25 or 30 years, as we've argued over our understanding of foundational issues about things like gender and marriage, the way we understand those things, the weapon that seems to have decided the war is love. Love is love. Love can't be wrong. It's a brilliant strategy. Who wants to be the person who opposes love? That makes you the bad guy in pretty much every movie, right? The angry, judgmental person who responds to the love of others by showing hate Yes, those slogans beg the question of what love is and whether we're now obligated to endorse and bless anything that anyone might ever want to call love. But it's hard to deny the, effective, or the effectiveness of the campaign to enthrone love, right? defined loosely as some combination of commitment, respect, care, romance, affection. It's hard to deny the effectiveness of the campaign to enthrone love as our highest cultural value. Seems this might be the most significant objection that modern Western people have to the church and to the message of Christianity. Fifty years ago, Christianity was respectable. There was social cachet available to followers of Christ, but now, at least in many parts of the country, Christians are seen as intolerant, bigoted, people who are opposed to love. In our current context, the Bible seems hopelessly outdated enshrining an ancient and obsolete uh, ethic that would choke out love, that would deny people the opportunity to express love. And so this morning in our passage from 1 John, we come to one of the most powerful, and maybe if you're not a Christian, if if you're not used to reading the Bible, maybe one of the most startling statements in all the Bible. As Christians... The God that we worship, the God that we delight in, the God that we believe has saved us, John says, is love. God is love. There are only a couple such categorical statements about 
the, the nature and character of God in the Bible. So earlier in this letter, John told us that God is light. Remember 1 John 1.5. The author of Hebrews tells us that God is a consuming fire in Hebrews 12.29. The apostle Paul tells us that God is one in Galatians 3.20, picking up on the foundational confession of the Israelite people. Uh, in John chapter 4, uh, um, or John chapter 3, Jesus, or I'm yeah, sorry, John chapter 4, Jesus reminds us that God is spirit, right? So we have some kind of foundational statements about God's character, his nature, his essence, his being, right? He is light, he is one, he is spirit, he is a consuming fire, right? Those tell us something about God. He's pure, he's just and holy in all his judgments, he's incorporeal. Right? Not in any way restrained or limited by this world of physical matter. And here in 1 John 4, in our passage for this morning, he is love. Love is so foundational to God's character that it's not enough to say that he is loving or that he loves. But John tells us he is love. That is to say, love isn't one of the things God does in isolation from all the other things that he does, but he is love. He is always loving all the time in everything that he does. God could no more be unloving than he could be limited or ignorant or unholy. So let's look carefully at what John says about God, about his love and about what it means for us. And as we do, it's my prayer that we'll be helped to think well about love in a world that is so often confused about what it does and doesn't mean. And as we consider this passage this morning, I just want to see two things together. First, let's see the love of God. And then second, let's see what John tells us about the love of God's people. So the love of God and the love of God's people. So first, looking at the love of God. So as I mentioned, John wants to show us that we don't understand God if we don't understand his love. So if you look at uh, this passage in the Bible this morning, you'll see there in verse 7, John tells us love is from God. He says there in the middle of verse 7, right? Love has its source in God. Verse 8, this categorical statement, because, he says at the end of the verse, God is love. Verse 16, he says it again, God is love. All throughout the passage, you have mentions of God's love for us. Right? He says God loves us there in verse 9. He says it again in verse 11, verse 16, verse 19. Right? You don't have to be an expert in the Bible to get John's point. Right? But, but notice what he shows us here about God's love. Right? Notice two things about God's love in this passage. First, we see that it is Trinitarian. See, Christians confess that the, the one God who is exists eternally in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that in his discussion of God's love, of the fact that God is love, John has to talk about all three persons of the Trinity. Right? When he says there, God is love, it's clear that he's talking specifically, particularly about God the Father. How do we know? Well, there in verse 9, he tells us, that this loving God showed his love by sending his son into the world. So there's only one person in the Trinity who has a son to send into the world, and that is the Father. Right? So when he says God is love, he's speaking specifically about God the Father. There in verse 13, John tells us, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us his spirit. Right? In verse 13, John tells us this God who is love abides in us. He we might say lives in us. He remains in us. Uh, John says there in verse 13, by the presence of his Holy Spirit. So we can't understand the statement, God is love, without reference to all three persons of the Trinity. Right? God's the Father. His love is shown in sending his Son. Right? This God of love, his love abides in us by the presence of his Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in God's love for us. And if you think about it for a second, that only makes sense. If God existed eternally in one person, so maybe think about the way our Muslim friends conceive of Allah. Right? If that were the case, 
then there's no way that God could be a God of love, a God who is love, right? Love has to have an object. And so a God who is alone in eternity past can't be loving, right? There's no one for him to love. You would have to believe that he became loving at the point where he created something that he could love. But even then, it's not clear why he would suddenly start to love. But the Bible shows us that the true God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. The true God has always existed in a relationship of love. And this makes so much sense of what we see in Jesus' life and teaching. Right At his baptism, at Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration, a voice from heaven declares, this is my son whom I love. Right? God the Father is proclaiming the love that he has for his son. In John's gospel, Jesus repeatedly spoke of the love that his father has for him and the love that he has for his father. We see in scripture that, that the Holy Spirit takes this abundant, overflowing, Trinitarian love and, and brings it to bear on God's people. So in the Old Testament, when God promises that he's never going to take his spirit away from King David the way that he took his spirit away from King Saul, he promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, that he says, I'll never take my love from you. Right? When he says, I'm not taking my spirit, he uses the word love there. Uh, Romans 5, 5 tells us God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 of our passage again tells us that God, God's love abides in us. It lives in us by the gift of his spirit. Right? God exists eternally in a relationship of love and delight. And listen, that's more than just sort of interesting theological trivia. It's actually a profound statement about the nature of the universe that we live in. And I think it's a compelling argument for the Christian account of the world. Because here's the thing, I think pretty much everybody loves love, right? We'd be hard pressed to go out on the streets in a sort of westernized society and find someone who doesn't think that love is a virtuous impulse, who doesn't think that the world would be a better place if we loved one another more. But if you don't believe that the world was made by the God who's revealed to us in scripture, right? The God who is love. Well, then it's not at all clear why love is good or, or why love should be preferred to hate or indifference, right? There's nothing about the world around us that, that our society should, that says that our society should value or, or protect or respect or encourage love, right? Think about other accounts uh, of the world and its creation, right? So again, you have Islam with Allah alone in eternity past. You have Taoism with its primitive giant pangu emerging from the forces of chaos to separate the yin and the yang with his axe. You have pantheistic religions like Hinduism, Norse mythology, Greek mythology with their many gods, none of whom would be characterized as love. You have atheism scientific materialism with its big bang of unknowable origin, its fierce and impersonal natural selection, right? All of those accounts of how the world came into being are very different from each other, but they all have one thing in common. None of them can offer any explanation for why love is good or love is important, why I should respect love more than I respect hate, why love should be protected by our laws. I think that means that if you want to attack Christianity for being unloving and opposed to love, as so many do, given that Christianity uh, opposes sexual intimacy outside of the marriage of one man to one woman, I think in order to attack Christianity on those grounds, what you have to do is first adopt the Christian view of the world and its creation in order then to attack Christianity. Because if you don't believe that we were made by a God who is love, then again, it's not at all obvious to me that love has to be important or that I'm obligated to respect love, that it's anything more than just a, a useful impulse in our, in our species' desire to pass on our gene pool. Right? If that's how you view the origins of the world, then I don't know why I need to validate your view of love. 
And so I think what many opponents of Christianity, especially in the West, do is first assume the truth of the Christian message that God, the God who made the world, is love, then rightly conclude that love is to be valued and cherished and protected, and then having borrowed all of that capital from Christianity and from our understanding of the world, then attack Christianity for failing to meet their understanding of what should be considered love. I believe the God of the Bible, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who, according to John, is love, is the best explanation for why it is human beings love love so much. Right, as the old saying goes, you only remember the revolutions that fail. Right, the ones that succeed simply become the status quo. You don't notice them anymore. And I think that's what's happened here. The Christian understanding of the world has become so deeply rooted in our consciousness that we don't even notice it anymore. We even borrow from it in order to reject the faith. So that's the first thing to notice here about God's love. It is Trinitarian. The second thing John tells us here is that God's love is most clearly seen in the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look there in verses 9 to 10. John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there are a lot of ways that God demonstrates his love. Jesus tells us in Matthew's gospel that when the Father makes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust, thus providing for their crops and their needs, he is showing love. Every good thing in your life, the food that you eat, the air that you breathe, the pleasures that you experience are all gifts from God, all proceed from his love. But the greatest, the most powerful, Honestly, the most shocking demonstration of God's love is seen in Jesus' death on the cross. There in verse 9, John says, This is how God's love is manifest, how it's made apparent, how it's made visible to us. God doesn't simply love in the abstract, but he's revealed his love. And it's that he's in the sending of his son. There in verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world. But it's not just his son. John's at pains to show us there. It is his, he says in verse 9, his only son, his unique son, his utterly beloved son. God sent him into the world, into this world of sin and misery and poverty and suffering. God sent his son into a backwater Roman province, born to a poor girl in a place where few noticed and few cared. He sent his son in human flesh so that, as John says there in verse 9, we might live through him. The idea is that without this gift, without God sending his son into the world, we are dead. We are not alive. We are spiritually dead in our rebellion against God. We have no hope of eternal life with our creator. But again, in a shocking development, God sends his son into the world so that we might live through him. There in verse 10, he sends him to be, he says, the propitiation for our sins. Right? Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've seen that word propitiation before back in 1 John 2, 2, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But that word indicates a sacrifice that takes away anger and replaces it with favor. So your kid comes up to you, they've messed up, they've stolen a bunch of cookies, you are rightly angry at them, they bring you your favorite chocolate bar, right? You're no longer angry, you are now happy with them, right? Okay, that's the principle. We're working on a cosmic scale here, so not the same, but that's the idea of propitiation, a sacrifice that takes away anger and causes you to be pleased. Jesus' death, John tells us, here and in chapter 2, is a propitiating sacrifice, 
taking away the anger of God towards us in our sins and replacing it with his favor. Now you might be thinking, hold on, what do you mean about God's anger? I thought John said God is love. How is God angry? How does he need to be propitiated? How does he need to be made favorable if he's already loving, if he is, in fact, love? You said he's loving in everything that he does, so how is he also angry? I think if you stop for a second, you know perfectly well that anger and love are related, right? Anger shows you what you love. If someone hurts your child, you will be angry because you love them. If a terrorist cell attacks your homeland, you will be angry because you love your country. If you hear about powerful people taking advantage of the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, you will be angry because you love justice. So when we say God is love, we're not saying that he loves everything. So for example, God doesn't love oppression. He doesn't love injustice. He doesn't love perversion, selfishness, or pride, or a million other terrible things that we could list. He actually hates those things. He hates them with a perfect, holy, righteous, morally pure anger because he loves. He hates those things because he loves all of the things that they defile and corrupt and destroy. Right? We, we can't watch the news on TV. We can't see the things happening in the Middle East right now. We couldn't worship a God who wasn't angry at those things because it would mean that he doesn't love. It would mean that he doesn't care. It would mean that he doesn't, doesn't have any sort of engagement with justice and people. God's anger and God's love are not opposed to each other. Now, the bad news is that you and I have lived our lives in such a way that we have crossed God's love. We've loved, we've done things that he hates. And so we are, according to the Bible, under his just wrath. But, praise God, his love has yet another dimension. He doesn't leave us in that state, but he, John tells us, sent his only son, the son that he loves, to be the propitiation for our sin. The son of God took on human flesh. He lived as one of us, keeping God's law perfectly, loving God with all his heart, and in his love, he gave up his life on the cross for us as a sacrifice for our sins. As John says there in verse 10, he is our propitiating sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus took on himself all of the anger that we deserve because God loves all of the things that we've defaced and defiled. Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice for us, as a substitute in our place. He paid the price that God's justice demands. He took our death. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. So that again, in John's words, there at the end of verse 9, so that we might live through him. John says that this is the place that we see God's love. There in verse 9, this is how it's manifest among us. That Jesus came in the flesh to die for us. So brothers and sisters, we find ourselves, I think, staring into some pretty deep waters here. Right? As John says there in verse 14, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This is a profound truth. But we should notice a couple of things about this love. If the love of God is seen most clearly in the Father sending his Son in the power of the Holy Spirit <coughs> to offer up his life as a propitiation for our sins, then I think we learn a few important things about God's love here. First, we see that divine love is sacrificial. God's love is a love that endures a cost. It is expensive love. It takes from what God has and gives to us, right? That's right at the heart of Jesus' death on the cross. It is a sacrifice. He endured our pain, our shame, our punishment so that we could live in him. And that's important 
Because as we've already seen in John's letter, that sacrifice of Jesus is the model for how we are to love one another in, this, in the church family. So you remember back in chapter 3, in verse 16, John said this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So love at its root is not some infatuation or obsession or sentimental affection but it's a sacrifice. It's a willingness to pay the price for the benefit and welfare of another. The second thing I think we see here is the depth of God's love. Right? If God had sent an angel to secure our salvation somehow, that would be amazing. If God had raised up a savior for the world, a great man like Moses or King David, well, that would be more than we could reasonably expect. But no angel and no man could actually save us. And so God did much more than that. Right? This is what the author of Hebrews is arguing for much of the beginning of his letter. God's love is seen in just how rare, just how precious a gift he gave to us. Again, there in verse 9, it's his only son, his beloved son, the son with whom he was well pleased. That's the son that he sent into the world. And so we can measure just how great God's love is for us, that he would give us this son. This is Paul's reasoning in Romans 8, right? He asks rhetorically, he who did not spare his own son, right, John would say, verse 9, his only son, right, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christian, think about how much God the Father must love you that he would send his son to save you. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson put it. He says, when we think of Christ's dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to himself. We almost think that God loved us more than he loves his son. We cannot measure his love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. The cross is the heart of the gospel. It makes the gospel good news. Christ died for us. He has stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. God has done something on the cross which we could never do for ourselves. But God does something to us as well as for us through the cross. He persuades us that he loves us. Christian, if God would send this son to die like that for you, his love must be very deep indeed. The third thing to notice about God's love here is its source. It is the glory, it is the greatness of God that his love does not find its source or its origin outside of himself. Think about it. If you love something that is very lovely, something or someone that is beautiful, noble, glorious, and good, that's not really a credit to you, is it? It's really a credit to the, the object of your love, right? Your love makes much of them because you love the wonderful things about them. But that's not what God's love is like. He loves us not because of us. Christian, he loves you not because you're good and wise, but he loves you despite you. He loves you despite your sin and selfishness and pride and perversion. Right? That's what God was telling the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 7. Look, there's nothing about you that's lovely. He says, why do I love you? I love you because I love you. Right, this is what Roman, or Paul's telling us in Romans chapter 5. Right, God's love comes for us, not that he would send his son to save good people, but that he, saved his son to, he sent his son to save his enemies. 
right? God looks at people like us, rebels against his law and authority, mired in sin and misery with nothing to offer him except the, the filthy rags of our unrighteousness. And he looks at people like us and says, I love them. I will send my only son to die for them. I will give them my spirit so that my love abides in them. And so Christian, we see the glory of our God. His love is so great. He is love. His love is so great that it doesn't even need a lovely object. God doesn't need any motivation or any source outside of himself. This is such good news. Because Christian, if you feel unworthy of God's love, if you feel like your sin has disqualified you, that God couldn't possibly love someone like you, then what you need to do is not start by trying to feel better about yourself. You need to get a bigger and deeper and richer view of God's love. God knew all of the ways that you would mess up. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for your sins. God knew every sin you would ever commit. And he sent his only son to be the savior of the world. So are you unworthy of God's love? Yes, of course you are. We all are. But the good news is, praise God, the glory of God is that his love doesn't need you to be glorious in order to love you. God is love. And that means he supplies 100% of what is necessary for you to be loved. That brings us then for our second thing to see this morning. That's God's love, the God who is love. Let's, let's move on and see what John tells us. Having rooted us and, and sort of framed our understanding of love here with uh, telling us about the love of God, let's move on and see what it is that John wants us to see about the love of God's people. Because having told us that God is love and that God's love is manifest in the gift of his son, John wants that truth to produce in us, in our church, love for one another. Yes, love in general is good. The Bible extols all kinds of love, love of neighbor, love of enemy, love of spouse, love of children. All those things are important. But what John's talking about specifically here in this passage is the love that you have for the other people in your church family, right? Repeatedly in this passage, he talks about loving one another, right? The recipients of this letter, these were churches. He's telling Christians, love the people sitting next to you, hearing this letter with you. This love is commended in several places in our passage there in verse 7. He says, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In the original language that John was writing in, in Greek, uh, you have the, the first two words there. He calls them beloved. It gets picked up here. Uh, it's from the, the Greek word agape. Right? He calls them uh, those who have been agaped, those who have been loved. He says then immediately, agape, love others. Right? You've been loved, love others. Right? God is love. John tells us here in verse 7, Love is from God. And so those who are beloved by God, they love with a love that comes from him. It is, as John says there in verse 7, whoever, it's true that whoever has been born of God and knows God loves his brothers and sisters. There in verse 11, he makes the connection clear. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, and here the references to the gift of his son, we also ought to love one another. See, there's a, a very important principle here that John is assuming that you understand. And that is experiencing the love of God in the gift of his son. Experiencing that love changes you. It's not a truth that you hear and then you put on a shelf somewhere and go about your business. The goal we're going to see of God's love is your transformation. God's love has a conforming effect on its objects. God's love delights in making you more like him. Right? You see that all over this passage there in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, 
and his love is perfected in us. Right? John says we haven't seen God, but if we love one another, we are, we are putting on a display of his character and essence. In that sense, he abides in us, he dwells in us, he remains in us. There in verse 13, he, he abides in us, we're told. We abide in him by the gift of his spirit. In verse 15, we're told God abides in us and we abide in him. Verse 16, when we know God's love for us, it says, when we, when we persevere in love, we abide in God. We have the God, there verse 16, who is love abiding in you. Right? John loves the word abide. There verse 21, he says, if you want to be a person who loves God, you have to love your brothers and sisters in the church. Right? Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Right? It's clear. If you've experienced God's love, if you want to be a person who, who loves God, then you have to love your brothers and sisters. Right? Again, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Right? His love, which precedes ours, produces ours. It creates ours. God's love makes his people loving. That's true, so much so that John can also say in this passage that the opposite is true. The absence of love in your life for your brothers and sisters, John says, is evidence that you've not experienced the love of God. There in verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, right? It's not hard to understand. If you say you know God, and God is love, and you don't love, John doesn't know what you're talking about, right? The absence of love for other Christians casts genuine doubt on whether or not you can be said to really know God at all. Do you remember that Jesus is teaching uh, in Matthew 25, where he tells the story of the sheep and the goats. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But the gist is that Jesus tells his disciples about a great separation that will take place at the end of time, at his return. That the world will be separated into two groups of people. One group will be cast off into judgment. Another welcomed into paradise. And so Jesus says about that second group of people, he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Listen, the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, Jesus is so united to his people. His love is so central to who he is and what it is that he's producing in his people that he can separate those who truly belong to him from those who just pay lip service to belonging to him based on their acts of love. Right? When Jesus sees practical, sacrificial love for the least of these people, the, the uh, least of his people, right? for, the, for the person who can offer you nothing in return, he says that's a distinguishing characteristic of his child. As John says there in verse 20 of our passage, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So say whatever you want about your love for God, your love for other people, particularly your brothers and sisters in the church, will tell you the truth. If you've experienced the love of God manifest in the gift of his son to be a propitiation for our sins, if you've experienced that love, you will love your brothers and sisters. I think that makes sense of what John says there in verses 17 and 18. These verses might be a bit confusing. But he says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we 
in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So in verse 16, John says that when we abide in love, we abide in God, and he abides in us. According to verse 17, that's the perfection of love. The word translated there as perfection has the sense of being brought to completion or or reaching its intended goal. This isn't the first time John's talked to us about God's love reaching its completion. If you remember back in 1 John 2, verse 5, he said that the love of God is perfected in us when we keep his word. And Lord willing, we'll think more about that when we get to chapter 5. Here, John says that God's love reaches its intended goal. It is perfected or completed in us when we can face the day of judgment, right? That day that Jesus talks about back in Matthew 25, when we can face that day without fear. God's love shown in the gift of his son, is intended to allow you to face the day of judgment without fear. The idea is the Lord Jesus will return one day to usher in a new heaven and new earth and to judge the world. And on that day of judgment, he will look at you and he will see something of himself. He will see something of his love in you. Not because you're so great and you figured something out, but because you are a recipient of his love. He will see that your love, your way there in verse 17 of being in this world is like his. He will see your pattern of life and there'll be something of his pattern of life in it. And so if you're in Christ, John's saying you don't need to contemplate that day of judgment with any fear. When love is perfected, when it's completed... When the love of God that led him to send his son to be the propitiation for our sins, when the love of Jesus that carried him to the cross, when the love of the Spirit abides deep down in you, when you respond to that love by loving God and loving the brothers and sisters that God has loved, then there's no room for fear as we look forward to Jesus' return. Right? Because fear would be rooted in my awareness of my sin and failure. Right? If, I, if I'm fearing that day because I'm aware of my own guilt and shame. But John reminds us that's all been washed away by God's love in Christ. Right? We fear because we dread punishment, he says there in verse 18. But if you've experienced the love of God in sending his son into the world to be our savior, there's no punishment left for you to, to dread. In his love, Jesus took it all from you. So there at the end of verse 18, John says, if you fear, right? if you're afraid of God's judgment... His love isn't perfected in you yet. That's not to say that you're not one of his children, that you're not a Christian. It's simply to say that God has more to do with you. God has more for you. He wants to dispel your fears. He wants to convince you of his love for you in Christ so that you won't fear. So look to Jesus. See his love for you at the cross. See the ways that this love is working in you and through you as you live in this world, and and you don't have to fear that day of judgment. So church, the application to us, I think, is clear. John says, let us love one another. As he said back in chapter 3, let us love not just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's be a church where we love one another. What is that love going to look like? Well, if John's telling us anything here, it's, it, that love is going to look like God's love, right? That's the love that we expect to see manifest in us. It's going to mean sacrifice because God's love is sacrificial. Loving one another will mean moving towards people in their need. Giving up what is precious to you in order to provide for what they lack. This love must mean loving people who don't deserve it. Loving people even when they're unlovely because that's how God loves us. Right? When you have an opportunity to show love to me, I don't want you to think, wow, Mike is so great. I'm going to show love to him. Right? Because that means that your love for me is dependent on how well I perform. And a lot of times I'm not great. I'm not lovely. I'm not worthy. No, what I want is for you to look at me and think, how amazing is our God that he would love somebody like that, right? 
if God loves him despite him, and God loves me despite me, I'm going to love that guy as well. Church, can you see what a beautiful thing it is that God's calling us to? Can you see how amazing it is, our calling as a church family? When, when you are here, when you're interacting with a brother or sister, you should have 100% confidence that you are loved by them, that you are accepted by them, that you are delighted in by them. Because that's how God views you, and God's love is at work in them. And when a member of this church loves you, when they show you kindness, when, when they pray for you, when they bring you a meal, when they send you a text, uh, when they meet some need that you have, when they serve you in some way or, or even serve your kids in children's ministry or, or a million other ways that we love one another, understand that when you experience love from another Christian, that is God's love for you. That love that you're experiencing has its origin in God. God put that love in them for you. That's his love in their hearts. And so you can receive it as such. This church should feel like a place where you are accepted and embraced and delighted in. Not because you've earned it, not because you've done enough, but because God's love is so great and it is powerfully at work in us. What a great privilege we have. Think about it, Christian. God, right? No one's seen God, John says here. God wants people to see him. And so his plan was to send his son to die for your sins, to, to take away everything that stood against you so that you could now be the object of his love. He sent you his spirit to abide in you and to, to bring the love of God to bear on your life. God's plan is that now you will be a, a living, visible picture of his love to your brothers and sisters in the church so that we can say, I've never seen God, but I've seen his love. I've seen his love in that person when they brought me a meal, in that person when they just sat and wept with me, that person when they showed love to my child, that person when they prayed for me. I've never seen God, but I sure have seen his love. What a privilege that God would transform a bunch of people like us by his love, by his sacrificial unilateral love so that we might look like him. And before we finish, just, just notice that what we're aiming for here is not simply more effort. I don't want you to walk away primarily resolved to, to do more and to, to work harder to show love. So there is some value in that. Discipline is good. Resolutions are good. I do hope that you walk out of here uh, planning and scheming for ways you can show love to your brothers and sisters. But that's if we're honest, that's not going to carry you very far, right? By Tuesday, the, the cares of the world, the, you know, the things you have going on will probably uh, erode most of your intentions if you're anything like me. Now, I think the thing that we need to do is to contemplate more and more, to allow ourselves to understand and delight more and more in the love that God has for you. Because, because that's where all of this starts, it starts with the knowledge that God is love. It starts with the knowledge that God has manifest his love in the world by sending his son. When this love of God is front and center in the way that we view the world, when this love is, is the, the thing that's front and center in the way that we view our lives, when it's front and center in the way that we view one another, it will change us. The spirit abiding us will conform us perfectly to the image of God's Son. And that's going to make us gracious and forgiving and sacrificial and compassionate towards one another. And it'll make us loving like Jesus. And so there may be no greater way to grow in love for your brothers and sisters than to come now together to the Lord's table. Because here at the table, we are reminded of God's love that he would send his son to die for us. Right? The, the bread that represents Jesus' body broken on the cross, the cup representing his blood shed for us on the cross, they are nothing if not displays 
reminders of God's great love for us. Right? When we come to the table, the Holy Spirit places the reality of Christ's love for us right in front of our hearts in a way that we can delight in. And so as we come to the table week in and week out, we ought to find ourselves shaped by this love. We find our hearts aligning with the love that is held out for us here at the table. We find ourselves loving God and loving our brothers and sisters more. Now, before we do come to the table, we should take a moment to examine our lives. That's what Paul tells the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, The Lord's Supper is open to all who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ, who have demonstrated that by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized, who are connected to a church in gospel, that believes the gospel in membership. Now, Jesus' invitation to his table is very gracious. To be clear, this is not something for the best and the brightest among us. He's not saying, look, if you've done a great job this week, please come and experience my love. This is not a reward for obedience. This is a gracious invitation. It's held out to you on the basis of Christ's obedience. It's his goodness, his love that matters. So if you've had a bad week, if you've sinned, if you're tempted and discouraged, if your faith feels frail, then come to the table. Because it's here that you find your faith strengthened and nourished by the Lord Here, we are reminded that God's love is only ever for us, despite us. Here at the table, we are reminded that God does not recoil from sinners. He does not reject sinners who come to him in faith. He doesn't despise you, but he loves you and sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. That said, the Lord's Supper is not something to be taken lightly. So if you know yourself not to be a follower of Christ, then this meal isn't for you today, at least not yet. So instead of coming forward, uh, we'd encourage you just to stay where you are and use this time uh, to think about your need for a Savior. Think about why it is that God's love is shown in the gift of his Son. We would love nothing more than to welcome you to the table with us at some future date. We'd encourage you to put your faith in Christ today. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but your life is marked by sin that you have no intention of turning from. If you're holding on to bitterness against a brother or sister, if you look at your life and you say, frankly, actually, I don't see love, I don't see God's love for my brothers and sisters at all in my heart, well, then I'd encourage you to do what Christians do, and that is repent, turn from that sin, and flee to Christ in faith. Only after that should you come to the Lord's table. This is a meal for sinners, but it's a meal for repentant sinners. So now we're going to take a moment to confess our sins to the Lord. We'll have a moment of silent confession. I'll lead us in a prayer of corporate confession, and then we'll sing and celebrate together. Let's pray.